San Diego Unified approves a COVID vaccine mandate. Trustee McQuarrie. Aye. Vice President Whitehurst-Payne. Aye. And Barrera, aye. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll get an update on boosters, variants, and more from Dr. Eric Topol. We need to get at least 90% of our population, but we're in the mid 50% right now. We have a big gap. We need 20% more of the population to get vaccinated at this point. La Mesa's Oktoberfest is back, and the Port of Entry podcast profiles cross-border animation director Jorge Gutierrez. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. San Diego Unified has approved a vaccine mandate. Aye. Trustee McQuarrie. Aye. Vice President Whitehurst-Payne. Aye. And Barrera, aye. Board members voted to require full COVID-19 vaccinations for school district staff and students 16 and older. The mandate goes into effect on December 20th. The school board's unanimous decision was taken after hours of sometimes contentious public comment. And KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez is here with more. M.G., welcome. Good morning. So who is covered under this vaccine mandate and what do they have to do by December 20th? It certainly has been a confusing time, Maureen. Um, But what we know for sure is that the mandate that was approved last night only impacts students that are 16 years of age and older. The other students who are younger, uh, it does not apply to at this time, but that could change in the very near future. And if the students that are eligible to be vaccinated, that is students 16 and over and district staff, if they refuse to get vaccinated, what happens? Well, for the staff, uh, ultimately termination. Uh, There is a process uh, for them to go through uh, before that would happen, but that is the threat for staff members. For students, it is simply a matter of uh, putting them in independent study, which is basically distance learning from home. That would be the consequence to not getting vaccinated. Now, this mandate doesn't extend, as you mentioned, to students 12 through 15, but they are currently eligible to be vaccinated against COVID. Other school districts in California, such as L.A. and Oakland, require those younger students to be vaccinated. Why not San Diego? 
here's the very important caveat to that. Uh, the students, uh, 12 and older, are under an emergency approval from uh, the FDA. And so San Diego Unified decided that they would only put a mandate in place for students who have been uh, fully approved uh, for vaccination. And at this moment, that includes 16-year-old and up. Unfortunately, they were not ready to proceed uh, to lower that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something very interesting that happened. Some people may not know. There is a student uh, board member who is a voting member of the school board. His name is Zachary Patterson. He is a senior at University City High School. Very intelligent. He is the one that steered the conversation to, hey, maybe we ought to uh, vaccinate starting at 12. And they, they seriously considered it and they went back and forth debating it. But the experts who were also involved in the meeting said that at this point, they were not prepared to move ahead with that. And so they are tabling the, the matter for at least a month and they'll see if the FDA gives full approval. And then at that point, they will take a vote to move ahead to include those children. In San Diego Unified's new vaccine mandate, there are some exemptions, but there are not many. What circumstances would allow for an exemption? A lot of the debate last night was around uh, children with special needs. Uh, they have IEPs, which are legal documents that require they get certain services. Many of them are medically fragile. So in those cases, uh, an exemption would be considered and investigated. Uh, they also brought up uh, students who are in foster care and homeless students, uh, mostly because of the instability. And so they would offer an exemption um, or at least a consideration for extending the time to get vaccinated in order to, uh, to take care of their situations. Now, students under 18 have to get parental approval for vaccination. So this is really largely up to parents to see their teenagers get vaccinated, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, the, the meeting was virtual last night. Uh, there was nobody in the administration building, but there were hundreds of parents outside the building protesting uh, on both sides. Uh, and it is ultimately up to them uh, to decide if their child will get vaccinated or not. But they, of course, will then have to live with the consequences. As you say, a large number of vaccine opponents and supporters at the meeting. We have some of the comments from both sides. Let's listen to a few now. This forcefulness scares me. It feels a little like my daughter is going to be treated like a lab rat in an experiment. I am an advocate for liberty, for freedoms, and for choice. The fact that this is even an agenda item right now demonstrates the board's myopic view of this issue. If you want to live alone in a bunker unvaccinated or just work and go to school online, go for it. Otherwise, we live in a shared community. I urge the board members to take into consideration working students' circumstances trying to keep their families safe from COVID when there are people who wish to not protect public health. That was Jenny Stock, Chris Bush, Micah Pollock, and Sarah Shinta, some of those who commented on the vaccine mandate plan during last night's school board meeting. MG, there were reports that many in the anti-vaccination group did not actually have any children enrolled in San Diego Unified's district. So why were they there? Well, um, politics, 
might be one quick answer, but the public comment uh, section of board meetings is exactly that. It is open to anyone in the public. And uh, there were lots of people there for the rally out outside on the front lawn who said they were there with a mission. They were there with a message. They were there to support those parents who believe that mandatory uh, vaccination is wrong. So plain and simple, that's it. There were almost a thousand people uh, signed up who wanted to speak. Uh, usually they, they limit public comment to just 20 minutes. They extended it to an hour, but that went past an hour to about an hour and a half. And that was not including any of the experts or presentations and then the debate from the board. So from start to finish, it was over three hours of discussion before the decision was made. What are uh, students and staff members going to have to submit by December 20th? Uh, proof of vaccination? Yes. So the 20th winter break is the deadline to be fully vaccinated. So if you're getting a dose, two doses, you have to back that up to about Thanksgiving uh, for the first dose. Uh, So if you've not had the first dose by Thanksgiving, then you're not going to make the deadline of December 20th. So there are lots of logistics to be worked out there. And and when they passed the mandate last night, uh, the board was very clear about communication. They need to communicate clearly with parents so that they understand what the rules are exactly and how they can go about meeting them. Now, some opponents warned that students and staff may leave San Diego Unified by the hundreds because of the vaccine mandate. You told us that some staff members may be fired if they don't get fully vaccinated in time. Could the district suffer negative effects from this mandate? The answer to that is absolutely. There were uh, teachers last night who spoke and spoke proudly that they do not support Uh, mandatory vaccinations, and that they would leave um, if they were forced to get vaccinated. So really, you know, like everything else with COVID, it's never simple. It's never, you know, crystal clear. And so we will find out, uh, you know, in the coming weeks uh, what that will look like and whether people are really serious about the threat to quit. San Diego Unified will be releasing more information about the vaccine mandate rollout today, and we'll have that on KPBS Evening Edition at 5 on KPBS Television. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez, and thank you so much. Thank you. Some recipients of the Pfizer vaccine were given a shot of good news last week when the FDA approved a booster dose for certain eligible at-risk age groups. While a sign of relief for some, many Americans who went the way of Moderna or Johnson & Johnson are waiting and wondering when booster doses of non-Pfizer vaccines will be approved. In addition, dozens of cases of the highly mutated R1 COVID variant have been detected in California, all while flu season looms right around the corner. Here now with answers to some of our most pressing COVID-19 concerns is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Good to be with you again. So let's begin with this new variant, R1. What do we know about it and how concerned should we be? We shouldn't be at all concerned. It's been around for a while. It has no worry with respect to outcompeting Delta. Delta is the issue. There hasn't been a variant yet that we've seen, including R1, that has any uh, um, features that will compete with Delta. So right now, 
there's only one variant, uh, one strain to be concerned about. Well, with flu season approaching, a lot of health officials are again concerned about a possible twindemic of flu and COVID. What's your opinion on that? Should we be concerned? Yes. The problem with flu, of course, is our vaccines are not great. They're not nearly as protective as the vaccines against COVID. Uh, And we have learned that using masks does help reduce the toll of flu. But uh, it, it certainly is a potential for a significant flu season. And they can be co-infections. That is, people can get both flu and COVID. So it's something that we want to protect against, against the use of vaccines against flu and masks to help prevent that as well will be helpful. Earlier this week, Pfizer submitted data to the FDA to clear use of its vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-old age group. Uh, Do we have a timeline for when approval for children under 12 will be met? That application was based on 1,500 children between ages 5 and 11 that had the vaccine uh, and another 700 or so who got placebo. The data uh, we haven't seen yet, it's just by press release. It was submitted to FDA. We're expecting that sometime in the month of October, it will get reviewed, possibly by end October or early part of November. If everything looks good, it could get uh, an emergency use authorization. So that's, that's the timeline that we're expecting. Two UC San Diego experts recently wrote in the Washington Post that once a week testing for the virus in schools isn't enough to prevent spread. Do you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. In fact, daily testing would be ideal. That's what's used in many other countries to promote safe school or test to stay policies. Uh, But once a week is totally inadequate. And so every other day would be the minimum. But if you could do it every day, and that's part of the problem we have is not enough rapid tests that are freely available or very inexpensive that are widely used. And so we're not still. Now, so far into this pandemic, into its second year, and we have uh, not gotten the testing uh, part straightened out yet. A third shot of the Pfizer vaccine is now approved for those most at risk. How does that play into the fight against the pandemic? Well, the people over age 60 uh, are at high risk. And what we saw from the data from Israel, which, by the way, are the only data that we have about boosters restoring effectiveness. There's no other place in the world that has gone ahead with a booster program. But in over 1 million people over age 60, by getting the booster, there was a 20-fold increase of protection that is restoring it to the original level of protection in the high, in the mid 90% against severe illness, which includes hospitalization. So That is clear. Uh, And age 60 should have been the cutoff, not age 65. So then if approval is dependent upon data for these other uh, vaccines, why are they lagging behind in that collection? Well, that's because there's no Israel. Uh, You know, there's only one place that's given booster shots, third shots at, at scale and has data. And there is no place. I mean, there's no place that has done that yet for Moderna or J&J. Now, you could extrapolate if we weren't purists and say there's there's enough uh, homology or similarity between Moderna and Pfizer that we know that the boosters are going to be needed maybe weeks later, but it's an inevitable uh, situation for people who are at high risk. And age is our best way to determine high risk. So we could go ahead right now. Uh, the problem we have with the Moderna application 
which is the same as Pfizer asking for age 16 and older to get boosters, that's going to get shot down because the data doesn't exist even for age 60 with respect to restoring effectiveness. So we're going to have to do some extrapolations because we don't have data. We only have data for the antibody response from the Moderna and J&J. We don't have the same type of data in a million people showing that it restores the high effectiveness of the vaccine. You know, while we have talked about herd immunity for vaccines previously, uh, does there need to be a critical mass of people getting boosters? It will help because in order to get us uh, truly in the level of containment where we have, you know, just so few cases around the country on any given day, we need to get at least 90% of our population either with uh, a a vaccine-induced immunity which in certain people will require a third shot, maybe a large proportion we'll see over time. And then of course, those people who've had prior COVID, which gives some immunity as well, they'd be better off to at least get one uh, shot. But we're, we're at, you know, in the, in the mid 50% right now, uh, if you just take the vaccine side, and if you add the prior COVID, you know, might get you to 70. We have a big gap. We need 20% more of the, of the population to get uh, vaccinated at this point. Uh, and certainly the, the third shots will help in the people who are highly vulnerable. You know, even this far into the pandemic, there is persistent misinformation about how effective masks are or how some masks may be more effective than others, like N95 versus KN95. What's the best guidance you can give to people on this? Well, I think the studies are unequivocal supporting the benefits of masks. Uh, The most recently large study uh, from Bangladesh. But if you can get a KN95, or an N95 mask, those are better, but there is some expense attached to that. Even a uh, uh, any mask, especially where it's tight fitting over the nose, uh, is 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 good. But the higher quality surgical masks are better than cloth masks. And as you go up this the ladder of you know quality and medical grade, you get even more protection. But masks are essential. And uh, there's just no way to counter the evidence, which is so compelling. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet when you're hungry for information and entertainment. You go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation.
Thank you. San Diego's independent budget analyst Andrea Tevlin announced her retirement this month after working at the city for 16 years. Her office was established by voters in 2004 as an independent check on the mayor. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen sat down with Tevlin to reflect on her career. Andrea Tevlin, thank you so much for speaking with us. Of course. Thank you. For those who are less familiar with the city government, what does the independent budget analyst do? The independent budget analyst was part of the ballot item um, because we were switching from a city manager form to a strong mayor form. That means that the city manager is no longer here to advise the council on issues. So that's where I step in, but not just for the council, but for the public and actually for being independent um, because the council members have very different perspectives. So your position was born out of the 2005 financial crisis that the city faced. Right. What was going on at that time and why was it determined that an independent budget analyst was necessary? From what I understand, there was um, a lot of concern about uh, having factual information from the, the staff even at that point. Um, the public, public did not understand the processes. So that's why they felt it, you should be independent because the council is varied and then you have a mayor who is uh, political as well and he's now running the, set, the city with 10,000 employees reporting to him. And they thought that this would help the public, it would help the council because with factual information, that's how you get good decisions made. You don't get good decisions from a lack of transparency. That was the other issue that was huge. There was a lack of tra transparency here. And they wanted those two elements, transparency and independent. So you've chosen to make this position a lot more about transparency than just, you know, analyzing And budgets. the community. Yeah. So, so why was that important to you? I guess just for my experience, I would have been in this field for, well, 30-some years when I came here, and I just know that that's an important part of the process because they can really make a difference when they're coming to the council or to the mayor um, if they have good information. And I, I just felt a responsibility for it. I really did. So we just decided, it's even in our mission statement that I have here, that it's providing council and the community with our clear objective and unbiased information. So that's, that was our goal from day one, and we have really worked on that. What was one of the most difficult moments in your career at the city? My most difficult moments <laughs> were in the beginning when no one understood um, what this office was going to do, you know, particularly the mayor's office. And um, it was difficult to get into that point where I could convince people that we are here to stay, we're gonna do our job, <laughs> we're gonna be factual, we're gonna be transparent, and that's it. <laughs> and it, it just took a while, you know, it just really took a while. Everyone at that point, you know, we were so focused on the budget, everyone was very concerned, getting back that, that's the first mission everyone had was to just get that budget back in place. And I think after a while, people, 
people got to know that we were doing good work, not trying to criticize. Um, so, but it was a it was a while. It was a while, a couple of years. What are some of the most joyful moments of your career at the city? I think the most joyful moments have been when people in the, you know the, the council and the mayor's office and other people in the community and groups got to learn about what we were doing, and then it, it kind of just slowly continued to grow not grown people, but grow in our work and, our resp and the respect that people had for us. And that is what made me extremely happy because we had, we had a goal that we had from the beginning, the one I just talked about, and um, that was very um, serious for me. I, I wanted it to be for the council and for the public, and I wanted other people to understand we were just doing good work. The city is about to start looking for your replacement. If you could give that person some advice, what would you say to them? The most important thing, of course, is to not be political, but you have to understand politics and you have to, you're in that world all the time. And you, you, it's not like a job working for council members that you're their staff person and you're advocating for them, which is very appropriate. But um, that's, not what, that's not what we do at all. Uh, and you have to be really um, diligent about it because obviously you're going to have some people who don't, you know, even council members who aren't happy with you any given week. And that's good because they can see there are different positions that people take and that they have to deal with that too. Andrea Teplin, congratulations on your retirement. Thank you for your service to the city and thanks for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. That was Andrea Tevlin speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Dangerous Air, a KQED investigative project based on analysis by NPR's California Newsroom, looked at more than 10 years of air quality data and finds that children are especially affected by wildfire smoke. KQED's Farida Jabvala Romero visited schools in rural northern California, one of the worst-hit regions in the state. Long-timers say sports events anchor the town of Willows, 100 miles north of Sacramento. At a Friday junior varsity football game in this town of 6,000, cheerleaders shake their gold and purple pom-poms. Thick haze covers nearby mountains in this part of the Sacramento Valley as megafires burn in Northern California. When there's too much smoke in the air, schools cancel outdoor activities like football. But today... Today's better, obviously, because we're playing the game. Stacy Lancey has two teen sons, one of them a student at this high school. She's also a third grade teacher and says the bad air quality is affecting students. As far as like kids going out to recess, playing sports, and kind of like overall health, we don't know why we're having headaches and runny noses. Headaches, runny noses, and a myriad of more serious health problems have all been linked to breathing wildfire smoke. Willows endured more than three months of smoke per year on average between 2016 and 2020, making it the smokiest place in the state. Millions of Americans are also breathing a lot more smoke from Western wildfires, an impact felt from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C.
That's according to an analysis of a decade of federal satellite images by NPR's California Newsroom in partnership with Stanford University's Environmental Change and Human Outcomes Lab. In a small town like Willows, physician assistant Brad Brown regularly treats patients at the hospital's family clinic. When there's smoke in the air, he sees more patients suffering asthma attacks, intense migraines, and stress. There's always somebody who says something about, well, because of the smoke, insert, you know, problem here, whether it's I haven't been able to breathe as well because my allergies are so bad, or um, I haven't been able to see my mom and dad because of COVID, and now I can't even go outside, so my mental health is so much worse. Children are more sensitive to dangerous particles and wildfire smoke because their lungs are developing. Since the scale of wildfires has never been seen before in modern history, we don't know much about the long-term impacts. And that has parents like Brown worried. So if you let your kids play outside during smoke days, what's going to happen to their lung capacity or their cancer risk? We don't know what that data looks like yet. At Murdoch Elementary, hundreds of students pour out of classrooms and play with balls and hula hoops during recess. It's a good day, but Principal Miguel Barriga doesn't take this recess for granted. When the air quality reaches levels the federal government says are unhealthy, Barriga has to keep students inside all day. And that's tough for some kids. You know, we'll end up in the office, uh, acting out in class, get emotional one way or another, or want to go home. Like other school administrators here, Barriga monitors local air quality reports constantly during wildfire season. He says he wants better forest management and solutions to climate change so fires don't burn so intensely. You want to believe that the decisions at, at levels higher than ours are going to be made, will be made to um, make it be more normal. More like it used to be, he says, when you could go outside and not worry about breathing wildfire smoke. That was Farida Jambala Romero for The California Report. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Bavarian traditions resume in the La Mesa Village this weekend with beer gardens, bratwurst, and live music. La Mesa's 48th annual Oktoberfest is resuming fully in person this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday after going partially virtual last year due to the pandemic. Joining me is Oktoberfest event coordinator Laurel McFarlane and Bernadette Tarantino, one of the owners of Tarantino's, a longtime vendor of the La Mesa Oktoberfest, to talk about how the festival is operating safely during the pandemic. Welcome to you both. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first, for those unfamiliar, I'd like to ask you both to describe the La Mesa Oktoberfest event and its significance to the community. 
So obviously it's been in the community for 48 years. So what's so great is a lot of the residents and everyone from San Diego will have been there as a little kid with their father or their grandparents or their aunt and uncles or their mothers. So a lot of it is family tradition coming back. And it's just really a great event also for the merchants. It brings a lot of stimulation to the economy down there. And this is really needed, obviously, after the pandemic. So it's really a great event that helps the local merchants and retailers as well. And it's just this amazing event that happens in East County and this really quaint community, which is pretty special because most events happen, you know, either at the Waterfront Park or downtown. So it's just really great that we have this event in La Mesa for East County and all of people from all over San Diego County. And Bernadette, what about you? It's actually a fabulous event. And it's like Laurel said, it's a family orientated event. And people have been coming here since they were little kids, which is so wonderful. And the atmosphere is just so fantastic. And it's so great to be back after two years of not having this event. So I think everyone's really looking forward to it. And it's so nice to have it in the La Mesa Village. It's kind of a rare thing that you have an event like this, but the whole community is involved. And that's what's so wonderful. And Laurel, as the La Mesa Oktoberfest resumes this weekend, what will be different about this year's festival? I mean, how has the event adjusted to the pandemic? Well, we've put in a lot of measures. I've also am the president of the San Diego Event Coalition, which during the pandemic, um, we wrote a 70 page document on how to do events safely. And we've talked to the Department of California Health. We're always in constant communication with the San Diego County Health Department. So we have a lot of different things we've put into place. We have 27 hand sanitizer stations that will be stationed throughout the entire event. Uh, we have a hot shot clean team that's going to be in all the beer gardens and all the high touch points, wiping things down constantly. We have free masks at the information center and Ferris wheel booth. We also have um, COVID guidelines. All our bar staff have to prove they're vaccinated. If not, they have to wear a, a mask. Our production vendors, well, everybody who's coming on site will be screened prior to being allowed on the site at our production tent. And we have a whole list. We have a COVID plan on the website at lamesaoctoberfest.org if people want to see a more extensive of what we're doing. But we've really put a lot of thought into this plan. And we want to put on a fun event, but we also want people to know that it's also measures have been taken to help people have a safe event too. And we're, you know, following all the guidelines put out for events by the California Department of Health and going above and beyond as well. And of course, last year's event was virtual due to the pandemic, where people could purchase food and beer packages and enjoy the event from home. How did that go? That was good. You know, I mean, it was great. People had a great time. It was fun watching it. But to be honest, you know, I missed all the smiling faces and the laughter. And, you know, we have so much fun. We have games, we have Ferris wheels, you know, we have the sit down beer garden, traditional beer hall we added in 2019. That's going to be back as well. You know, there's nothing like in person to see, you know, all the people and all the fun. And it's just really exciting to be back. And are you expecting a larger turnout at this weekend's fest as it returns fully in person? 
I think we're expecting, you know, about the how traditionally it's really hard to tell how many people are going to come up, out, how people feel. If people feel like they want to come out, we ask them to come out. We understand not everyone feels comfortable. So we just want people to come out, enjoy themselves if they feel comfortable. And if not, we'll see them in 2022. And we respect everyone's decision. As one of the main food providers, Bernadette, of the events Beer Gardens, tell me about your history with the festival and how the pandemic impacted your involvement in business overall. We've been involved with this Oktoberfest in La Mesa over 20 years, and I've been proud to be the Bratwurst Kitchen and the La Mesa October um, official Bratwurst. We're in tune with the um, health department. I've been working with them closely just and to make sure we're going by all the guidelines. And you won't believe it. Our business grew last year. It's just so amazing. Our business at where we do festivals, of course, it impacted our business. We didn't have anything going on. We haven't done it. Uh, it's been two years now, really, since we've done anything because there's been no festivals allowed. But our our family business has grown. And it, with this pandemic, it was even better, which is the strangest thing. Yeah. Laurel, uh, what was the pandemic's impact on the event as a whole last year? The event in a whole, obviously, it was not a moneymaker. It did not do much for the community, you know, so it was very impactful in that sense, you know. The event industry in general, was one of the most devastated um, from the pandemic. You know, we went virtual, but virtual just isn't the same as in person or live. And we were the first industry to shut down and we didn't ever open up until June 15th. So I think people forget that too. You know, other businesses were able to open up in some modified format. We never were. So we just really ask that people show some grace and love to all the event people that are coming back. It's been two years, you know, people might be a little rusty. So we just hope when people come visit, there's some grace and community and people just, you know, high five, great job to all the workers. If people can just really encourage them, it would be amazing. And Bernadette, as a vendor, I know you've had to make adjustments. So what will you be doing differently to ensure safety at this weekend's event? All of our workers will be wearing masks and we're just following all the guidelines. You know, we have the hand washing stations, of course, and the sanitized stations. Everybody's wearing gloves. So we're pretty well covered. I've been speaking with La Mesa Oktoberfest event coordinator Laurel McFarlane and Bernadette Tarantino, owner of Tarantino's, a longtime vendor of the festival. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, and we hope to see everyone out in La Mesa this weekend. Like thousands of people in our binational region, film director and animator Jorge Gutierrez grew up crossing the border between Tijuana and San Diego almost every day. That cross-border experience can be seen in the work Gutierrez does today. He's the director of the animated movie The Book of Life. He's one of the creators of the hit Nickelodeon show El Tigre. And he's got several new exciting projects coming out on Netflix soon. One of those projects is Maya and the Three, an animated series that will be released on Netflix in October. I don't want to be cooped up because I'm a princess. Great eagle warrior. Oh. This is no place for a girl. Holy caca! 
Alan Lilienthal, host of KPBS's Border Podcast, Port of Entry, talked to the famed animator about his new show and his cross-border influences in a recent YouTube live event. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this came about and the quick summary of the, this epic quest you're taking this princess on? Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm originally from Mexico City and I moved to Tijuana when I was a little kid. And one of the things that happens to, to, I think, to a lot of Mexicans is that the further you get away from the center, the more you romanticize it. Seeing a lot of the imagery of the handsome Aztec man holding the beautiful lady uh, with, with the popo volcano behind them, all those images that I saw in cobijas and in the side <laughs> vans and you know, in tattoos and everywhere, I've always kept going like, wow, the women are, are, are just the object of desire and they're the, the prize or the, they're never the warrior. Why are the warrior women? A lot of this stuff is mythology. Why are there no more women? And so I looked into a lot of the, the myths, especially the Aztec warrior is such a huge part of, of Mexico. It's in the money, it's in the soccer teams, it's everywhere. So I said, I think, I think we should hack mythology hmm. and I'm going to create this warrior princess and it's going to be a metaphor for today. And it's going to be a metaphor for the history of, of the women of Mexico who don't get credit for being warriors. Uh, mm. Just being married to a Mexican man, you're already a warrior. You already, <laughs> already deserve a medal. So all the, all the women in my life, my, my grandma, my mom, my wife, my sister, I mean, the, the lives they've lived, these are warrior women. So I wanted to honor them with the show. Oh, that's beautiful, man. I think that's incredible because like we were talking about a little bit before, uh, Storytelling is so much more than entertainment. You know, I think if we want a lot of these societal issues to to shift to a more harmonious place, the storytellers have a huge responsibility. The stories we tell shape our future. So I'm super stoked to see that. Uh, I hear it's going to have a, a soundtrack that includes a lot of metal music. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so wow. Is uh, Gustavo Santolaya. And he's working with uh, another composer named Tim Davies from Australia. And, you know, Gustavo Santolaya was very much a part of the 90s sort of rock and Espanol era of music that I, I was in high school when all those things happened. I, I joke with them that I lost my virginity to his soundtrack. Uh, he <laughs> when, I, when I would tell him that, he, he, he would like just shake his head. But all that influence, Caifanes, Malita Vecindad, you know, Café Tacuba, obviously. And so there's metal, because to me, you know, there's a lot of metal bands and especially in South America that were huge. So all that made it into the show and all those ideas that culture is fluid and culture evolves to a kid today, the music from the 90s is ancient. So that's ancient music now. So that, that was a big part of that. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, in a, in a lot of your work, I can see this, but it sounds like in my end of three, there's going to be a lot of kind of mishmash of Mexican, American pop culture, indigenous folklore, all kind of meshed into this story. Yeah, I mean, that, that was another big thing that I, you know, in Book of Life, some people were a little shocked to see our main character sing a Radiohead song in the middle of a bullfight in 1910 Mexico. And I said, if I, if I used an authentic song of that time, no one would know it. But by taking things that I lived through and remixing them and re basically appropriating the soul of what those uh, songs meant, into the context of the movie, then you, you, you get to introduce into a whole new generation and you get to introduce the duality of honestly the border, right? Because mm. I heard Creep sang by mariachis and I said, look how great that song is that it, it went somewhere else. And I remember at the time, I didn't know any better. So I put it in the script 
And Guillermo del Toro, who, who's the producer, said, you're, you're not going to get the song. They denied the song to you know Alfonso Cuaron. They denied me the song. There's no way in hell you're going to get the song. So I, I, wrote, I wrote the band, and we sent them a video of the moment in the movie, and I explained how that song was basically my, my war cry as a teenager when I didn't think I belonged and how much it meant to me and how as a kid in Tijuana, that was literally my, my little flag that I raised. And, and Tom York said, yeah, you can use it based on the on Wow. So I am eternally thankful to Radiohead. And after that, every band we asked who was on the fence about letting us use their songs, uh, we would say, oh, so, so you think you're better than Radiohead? Is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> Tom York said yes. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it seems like just having grown up at the border and crossing the border, I'm sure on the way to school and on and all that, it seems like a lot of that the bright and wild, colorful visuals that you see at the border are very influential in your work. And I know in this book of yours that I have right here, Border Bang, you shout out the border and like all the border vendors who we've spent a lot of time talking to and their creativity and entrepreneurial spirit, how how they're like, they seize on pop culture and taking on the zeitgeist, you know, and any characters, movie stars, rock stars, and kind of make make them their own and are able to make a living off of them and support support their families. It seems like this mishmash kind of like culture is fluid, like you said, has very much influenced your work. Can you tell me about like how how crossing the border, if that's accurate? Absolutely. Uh, you know, as a kid, as a nine year old crossing that border, you know, two hours every day to go to school, you're a sponge. And I would absorb everything that the vendors had. So seeing Tupac next to SpongeBob, next to, hmm. you know, Bob Marley, next to Scarface, next to Chavo del Ocho. A lot of times I didn't know who, who the people were. And I, I would sort of decipher like, why is Mickey Mouse next to the Virgin Mary? Like all those images got tattooed on my, on my eyes. And then the border's alive, right? So I remember when, you know, when Kurt Cobain passed away, immediately all this Kurt Cobain stuff started popping up. It's almost like the border honored him with the bootleg, the bootleg mm. were uh, laying down for him. And I remember, you know, same thing with Selena uh, was murdered. All the Selena stuff started coming out. You would know who, what teens were doing well because all their stuff was selling. It was like the border was alive and who they chose to to honor and who, by the way, who they chose to vilify, right? So in Halloween, if you saw uh, Salinas de Guartari costumes, basically the border was saying, yeah, the president of Mexico is the devil, right? Like all, hmm. the, all these immediate reactions that as a kid really informed me, really informed the way I see characters and the way I see color. Mixing things is in our DNA. I think as border kids, having grown up with one foot on each side, you kind of get used to that back and forth every day. And mm. able to to go, look at what happens to American culture when it comes down here, but then look at what happens to American culture when it's recontextualized and represented to an American audience. And, you know, Bart Sanchez from The Simpsons and all these mm. start happening. I love all that stuff. Because to me, culture is evolution. And so mm. grabbing these things and making them your own, your own that's, that's Tijuana, right? That's, that's San Diego. That's that hybrid uh, state we get to live in. And that was director and animator Jorge Gutierrez talking with Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal. To hear the full interview, go to portofentrypod.org or find and follow Port of Entry wherever you listen to podcasts.